Hey everyone, and welcome back to the First Act Podcast. This is part one of entrepreneurship in music and Web3 with SoFar Sounds and with Others founder, Tom Lovett. Listen in as we break down his unique path, breaking in and building a sustainable career in the arts. This is an episode you won't want to miss. And now, hosted by Harry G, this is your one-stop shop for hot talk straight from the top. Whether you're trying to build a job in pop, rock, or any other artsy schlock, here's your top dog with info that can't be bought, it's gotta be sought. So sit back, crack a six-pack, cause we're about to chit-chat and rip facts. It's the First Act Podcast. Tom, thank you so much for making time to be on the First Act Podcast. Great to be here. For those of you who don't know my story with Tom, Tom and I actually met through a music managers group on Facebook as many people in the music industry meet nowadays virtually. I can't remember exactly what our initial conversation was, but I think, Tom, you were advising a music technology company. I was a beta tester or giving some feedback or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. It's a, uh, a music ad tech company. Yeah. Before we actually kick into you know your whole background in the music industry and what you're working on today, why don't you tell everybody how you would define your role in the music industry? Yeah. So uh, historically, I suppose it's traditionally been in like the live entertainment and then uh, brand partnerships space. But nowadays, it's sort of it's still sort of in the live space, but really where the live space intersects with impact and with Web3. Right. And uh, the name of your company is With Others. Is that right? That's right. So I started with others with a few other people about a year ago. After having spent eight or so years at SoFar Sounds, where I was part of the original founding team. So this is the second company I've started and hopefully made all my mistakes the first time around. <laughs> well, SoFar Sounds was, at least in my opinion, it was quite a success. So, you know, they're still running, aren't they? Yeah, still running, still going strong. I mean, it was a crazy rocket ship to be on, just like insane product market fit. And the initial years, none of us had any idea what we were doing, you know, <laughs> or even how to, like, to build a business inside of this thing. We kind of like scaled a community first and an experience and then had to kind of set about trying to bubble up some sort of company in, inside of that. And I think we did, we did okay. You know, we made plenty of like mistakes along the, along the way, but we uh, helped a lot of artists find a lot of new fans and have like some great experiences and for fans in turn uh, gave them hopefully some memories that they can cherish absolutely i I know that i've attended a number of so far sounds events in new york and montreal i've always had great experiences with so far sounds so i'm excited to see what you guys do with with others with with others yeah (laughs) it's a tongue twister yeah you're probably getting very used to saying that yeah Great. And, you know, having a community first approach to any business, as I've been learning through interviewing many different founders and people in the music industry, that's the right approach, it seems, especially with the new wave of technology with Web3 and all of that. Like, there's a huge emphasis on community and community development. Yeah, I mean, community led growth kind of like powers itself, you know, but I think that that's a favored topic of discussion by new Web3 projects. I think there can be some smoke and mirrors there, you know, like you have to think about with community engagement, like what's the incentive structure behind the community itself? Because if you just kind of have community for community's sake or 
because you have just pure economic incentives, then it's easy for that community to die on the vine or for the participation to be performative, right? Real communities form when people get like actual tangible emotional value from their participation in the community and tether their like identities strongly to it. So like if you can get that, then that's really powerful because it can grow under its own steam. All you have to do is just be a curator of it. Couldn't agree more. Authenticity is key, right? Mm-hmm. And anything that you're working on, authenticity is key. I want to come right back to this in just a moment. I want to hit you with a couple icebreaker questions. So as a tech and music entrepreneur, what is your morning routine? <laughs> Good question. Uh, well, I get up around seven, work out, drink some water, drink some coffee, sat at my desk by eight. And then I just like mainline a liter of black coffee and start calls. Wow. And so are you often like right now you're sitting in your kitchen? I guess this is your this is your work from home workstation. Mm-hmm. Is this where you spend most of your time? Yeah. Yeah. Even prior to the global pandemic, I was a work from home kind of person. We had offices at so far, but I <laughs> rarely ever went in. I just find it more, you get more focused, you get more done, you know, you're closer to your fridge. There's a list of benefits. <laughs> Speaking of fridge, what's your favorite snack food? Okay, so <laughs> there's something my, my partner complains about a lot, the I don't snack. It's like a character flaw. Okay, so you don't have snacks. So is there like a meal that you have every day? Like do you have the same breakfast? Oh, yeah, yeah, I do. Um, uh, I'll tell you something that's very LA right now is we, we make our own granola. So, <laughs> so that's, when I say we, she makes our granola. <laughs> That's my breakfast every day. <laughs> but you watch, right? You, you supervise. I supervise. And uh, I'll taste test. You know, I'm very helpful. <laughs> Quality assurance is very important. Yeah, it is. It is yeah. <laughs> so as I can tell, you're not from LA originally, right? You're from somewhere in the UK. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Born and raised in the UK and in the countryside, kind of near to Manchester, a little town called Stoke-on-Trent. Stoke City for my uh, my English soccer fans. <laughs> well, born and raised out there, lived in London for a long time, uh, like most of my 20s before moving to the States. So I moved to New York and kind of drifted to LA and was like doing the bi-coastal thing for a while before COVID had to sort of pick one. And so I picked the sunnier side. <laughs> so growing up on the countryside, what was your very first job? Probably like weeding the neighbor's <laughs> driveyard. Yeah. There's this like running joke that until so far, every job I had, I was either fired from or, or ran that company into the ground. <laughs> okay, let's talk about that. Okay, so the weeding job, how old were you? Yeah, I must have been like 14, you know? <laughs> okay, so that, that was like a high school gig in the summers or something. You got paid a little bit of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then I was like, I had like retail jobs, got fired. Why? I was terrible at them. (laughs) I was distracted, you know? (laughs) Like how long did you last? And like, were you good at getting fired at least? Or would you throw a tantrum? Or were you like surprised? I mean, after, you know, a bit of practice, I got really really good at getting fired. (laughs) But then I had, um, I was a musician. So I had a band that ended up starting a little label with some other friends and that label turned into like a promotions company, a publishing company, uh, 
we uh, raised a bit of money to try and like launch a Spotify competitor before Spotify launched in the UK. When was that? 2006, I think. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you can tell who won that particular competition. (laughs) (laughs) But you had your finger on the pulse in 2006 when I was still using, well, Napster had already died. And I was probably using like, what was it? Like LimeWire or, or Kazaa, Kaza, whatever people would call it, FrostWire. Yeah. You were already thinking ahead. I'll tell you what, actually, the funny thing about that business was our whole concept for it was to build the listening experience around playlists. So like 10 years later, go figure, you know? Your premise or your mission was to build the whole listening experience around playlists. Yeah, was to build the whole listening experience around uh, playlists and the playlists would be the primary way that the fans consumed music media. But, you know, we were 18 years old. No idea what we were doing. Yeah. And how long did that last? And I guess how, how far into the project did you guys make it? Obviously, there's one thing to have an idea. It's another thing to execute. And as a young entrepreneur, it's, it's hard to figure out how to execute. Yeah. And particularly like how to execute when you're trying to work with the music industry. I think for technology companies in general, it's just the hardest industry to work with. It's super opaque. It's full of dinosaurs. You know, it's often uh, pretty closed to new ideas for social cultural reasons. While at the same time, I don't know, there's like this weird dichotomy in the music industry, I think, between all of that stuff. But at the same time, Artists in particular tend to be super open and driving a lot of new ideas. And it kind of creates like this sort of tension between the artist side of the industry and the business side of the industry. To answer your question, we got to like MVP, did like a couple of distribution deals with like Merlin and some others before uh, running out of money. Cool. And, And did you guys raise any money for that or was it just bootstrapped? We raised like angel money. It's like a couple of hundred thousand. That was it. So then I was like, pretty burnt out, went and got a job in digital media, got fired. (laughs) Where was that? And what were you doing? I was like a small digital agency and I was like doing sales and was so, so bad at it. And then I worked a bit as a tailor for a while. Really? Yeah. 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 I can tailor a suit. (laughs) Wow. I'll tell you why actually. Yeah. That label that I mentioned back when that was when I was in college, every band that we signed it was like a kind of soul style label. Like we signed soul artists. And so every band that we signed in that kind of Atlantic stacks look and feel, we kitted them all out in matching suits. But the tailor that we used was just bad at his job. So you fired him and you took his job. Well, I had to like check all his work because we'd get like a pair of pants back and they'd have like a 15 inch waist. And you'd be like, what <laughs> do you think you're like? Who do you think you're making this for? <laughs> oh, that's funny. I ended up, you know, picking up a thing or two. <laughs> so were you just like Googling and YouTubing how to tailor a suit or did somebody teach you or? Yeah, no, I just had to kind of like teach myself. But yeah, so then I worked a bit as a tailor and then I met a manager friend of mine, introduced me to the other guys from so far and like met them, thought it was really cool what they were doing, but didn't really know if there was a business behind it at all. But so the quality of the experience and saw the market fit, which was there from like show three, you know, mm-hmm. 
just felt like there was something that we had to at least try to build out with it. So we did, you know. So Far Sounds, I think, was founded when? Like 2011, 2012? Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. So how big was the team? Who was on the team right from the start, I guess, when you started to meet people? So it was me, Rafe, and then uh, there were two other original founders, a guy called Dave, who uh, was an artist and left the team around the the time I joined, and another guy called Rocky, who stuck around for quite a few years as well, before leaving too. It was a bit of a community even when I joined. So that was like the people who were on it full-time, but there was a pretty broad network of people who were just like involved in some way or another in London and other cities, even by the time that I met Rafe. So it always sort of felt like a bigger thing than it was at like its core day to day. Right. Because, you know, you've got a lot of community and you guys grew pretty quick, right? Like, uh, was it started in London and you guys started doing pop-up shows in London in like DIY spaces? What existed when you joined the team and then where did you guys grow to after that? I think we'd done like one or two shows in New York when I joined. There was a woman called Jody who was like running things out of there and maybe a couple of other cities. So it scaled broad more quickly than it scaled deep. And it's a quintessential sort of network effect growth in the sense of like people would experience it while traveling, go back to their home city and then hit us up and be like, hey, I'm in Manila. Like, can I start a chapter here? And we just said yes. (laughs) and kind of gave them the playbook and some light touch monitoring, but kind of let them for the most part, just kind of let them get on with it. And then uh, gradually, it's like we matured as a business. We started to kind of go deeper in uh, our focus markets and monetize those markets and build products to better organize and merchandise and track and market and all of like that stuff that goes into operationalizing and scaling a consumer business. Wow. Okay. So a lot of people would travel. They'd hit up the so far shows. Some of them actually conceptualized their own version of the idea, wanted to do it in their own landscape, which is very cool. How did you guys do quality control? Or did you guys not care as much? You were like, you know what? They seem like they're smart. We're going to give them the playbook. We'll help them out a little bit. Like, would you guys fly out to see their first couple shows? Oh, yeah, for sure. We like traveled a lot. And we would get on a plane and like fly to meet this team for their first or second show and spend time with them and give them advice at that event and then afterwards. But it definitely had like none of like the conceptual tracking infrastructure that you would build into a modern product now. Like it's not like we were like taking NPS scores or anything really. Like to some degree, there was less technology then. And even communication was harder. You know, there wasn't like easy video calls. So a lot of it was just based on trust. Right. Now, how did you guys find a lot of the bands to perform? Like, were they often on tour? Were they local talent? Can you talk a little bit about that structure? Yeah, they were mainly, mainly local talent. I would say like maybe 90% of cases because we were like really focused on the unknown artist. Like the artists that today would have like 5,000 monthly listeners on Spotify or fewer, like who uh, may be extremely talented, but are just trying to get over that like cold start problem of finding their fan base beyond their initial friends and family. And the way that we discovered those artists was through having teams in market 
discovering through pure word of mouth. And to some degree, like artists applying as we grew, like artists discovering the platform and applying to play and going through a vetting process. But uh, it was pretty late in the day when we started to kind of intercept with the traditional music industry with agents and labels. But as we did, you know, we started to kind of get on that traditional roadmap treadmill for an emerging artist. Like it was a, a sofa show, it's just like a stop that you kind of made along the way as part of your career progression. I see. Okay. Were there any shows in particular that stand out to you as, you know, I, I know it's hard to pick one favorite, but was there something that really stood out to you as like a very iconic show throughout your time at so far? I mean, yeah, I mean, like I booked Billie Eilish's first ever live show when she was 14 here in LA. I remember that was a, a really special night. I remember to, uh, I don't think the show once with local natives in LA too, actually, in like some backyard in Silver Lake that was part of a big campaign that we ran for Amnesty International. And it was local natives and Andrew Bird and Lauren Ruth Ward. It was the culmination of a big campaign and I was like exhausted. <laughs> and it was a beautiful night in like this sort of twinkle light lit backyard in Silver Lake. And it was uh, just a very special atmosphere. So you reached out to a lot of these artists, I guess, before they had really exploded. And how did you even know about Billie Eilish, for instance? You know, I'm sure a lot of the listeners are going to want to hear about that. How did you even go about approaching that team? Actually, you know what? Billie Eilish was a bit of a cheat because uh, that came from a referral. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I was actually from Tom Windish. So the real credit goes to Tom because he had like found her and he was like, I'm working with this new artist. We had a show planned at his office at the old Windish office. Right. And so he was like, you know, working with this new artist, we should really like put her on and turned out man's got an ear, you know? Yeah. I'm sure he's never heard that before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if y'all listening to this, don't know who Tom Windish is, just, uh, just Google. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that you wore many different hats, you know, being part of the founding team so far. What would you say were like your top roles within the team? So when I joined, it was mainly focused on uh, operationalizing the supply side mm -hmm. and sort of building the brand architecture. But as time went on, uh, focused more on the product and like product ownership, design of the initial uh, platform because in the early days we ran everything off of like google sheets you know <laughs> so we eventually were able to build that out build off there and onto our own product so spent a lot of time on that and then in the later years once the kind of core ticketing business was off the ground i stood up our like in-house agency so sort of acting like virtue to vice that was a lot of experiential content media campaigns with big brands ranging from like Stella Artois to Jameson, higher hotels. We worked on the, the release campaign for Bohemian Rhapsody when that movie came out. It deals with Spotify and with Airbnb and, and a bunch of others. So we did a lot of like kind of big campaign stuff through that. That was about the last thing I did there before taking a step back. Interesting. And are you still involved with them in any way? Or now that you're working on with others, you're focusing full time on that? I am just uh, cheering from the sidelines now. Obviously, you know, still a big shareholder and uh, 
still kind of keep in touch, but as a spectator. That's nice. And so I'm sure if you wanted to go to a so far show, they'll probably just hook you up with tickets. You get to show up. <laughs> yeah. And I don't have my admin login to the, to the platform anymore to just put my name down. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you, you got, you got to call in for a favor or something. Got my access revoked. <laughs> Ultimate betrayal. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to part one. Stay tuned for part two. Remember, new episodes release every Thursday at 12 p.m. Pacific. See you there.